And now, church, I would invite you to take a Bible in hand and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at two passages this morning. We'll begin in 1 Timothy, the first chapter, verses 15 through 17, and then we'll read John chapter 4, verses 20 through 26. If you're using the Pew Bible, we'll start on page 991. I'll read 1 Timothy, then John 4, and then in the sermon we'll deal with John chapter 4 first, then 1 Timothy, and then both of them together. Lord willing, it will make sense to you in just a couple minutes. Uh, we are finishing up here this Sunday, morning and evening, our Faith Focus series. And we remind you each week, the Faith Focus series is something that we want to see emphasized in our church body to start a new year. So there's other areas of the ministry, our small groups, our growth groups in particular, but then other areas in which we're taking a theme and we're thinking about it together in order to encourage and build one another up. And one of the main ways that we're doing that is in this sermon series to begin the year. We have been looking at the fruit, um, I mean, the blessing of confessionalism the last couple of weeks. Today, my assignment is the fruit of confessionalism, which is worship. Uh, the title of the faith focus this year is Rooted, Confessionally Connected. And if I had to uh, put in my own words why we came to this subject and this theme to start the year I would put it this way, it's, we want to see how the truth of scripture expressed and preserved in the historic creeds and faithful confessions of the church keep us steady and growing in turbulent times. So we want to see how the truth of scripture that God has used the historic creeds of the Christian church and the faithful confessions of the Christian church, how the truth of Scripture expressed in those, preserved in those, will keep you, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, steady, and not just steady, and planted on a firm foundation, but rooted and then growing up, even during difficult and turbulent times. Before we jump into our two passages, let me just remind you, uh, just in case uh, it has slipped your mind. It's always helpful for a reminder. What is a creed? When we talk about the historic creeds, what do we mean by creed? The Latin credo means I believe. And so when we say the Apostles' Creed or other things, it's often prefaced with Christian, what do you believe? Um, and a creed is the basic beliefs of the church that have been handed down from the earliest of times. Basic beliefs handed down from the very beginning now, a confession is much like a creed, but it's larger. It's more detailed. And we have multiple Christian confessions. You can think of it this way. The creeds kind of put the boundaries for the big, huge Christian family. And then within that family of Christianity, there are cousins. And each cousin's set of cousins have a confession, whether it be Lutherans, Baptists, Presbyterians. And so the confessions go into more detail on secondary issues of a particular group, things like what do we believe about baptism, the end times, predestination, the order of salvation, the Lord's Supper. So then related, then what do we mean by confessionalism? We've been talking about the, the blessings of confessionalism, the fruit of confessionalism is the subject this morning. What is confessionalism? The belief in the usefulness and the importance and the necessity of a full public statement of a church's official doctrinal beliefs, beliefs that are founded upon the scriptures. So the practice of confessionalism is it's a church that says it is a priority and we think it's important and it's useful and necessary that a church identifies what are their beliefs and then makes that available so that people may know. And so in the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, the denomination that we are part of, the group of cousins, you could say, in the bigger Christian family, our doctrinal statements 
that are binding for elders, deacons, and pastors are the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechism. And so confessionalism means that you get to know what this church holds to. Now, I'll pause there, and I'll remind you what we tell you in the About Your C class, which is the class for people new to the church. It's for people who want to learn more about the church, and it's for people who want to consider joining the church, is that membership does not require that you affirm everything that the pastors, elders, and deacons affirm. Membership in the PCA, membership at University Reformed Church, requires personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are eligible for membership in this congregation. Even if you do not agree with everything in the Westminster Confession of Faith, But as you come and inquire about membership here, we want you to know what the pastors teach, what the elders believe, and what the deacons hold to. We want to be up front. We we don't want any surprises. We want you to know the interpretation of Scripture that we hold to so that you are informed and you can engage accordingly. So why is this important? Well, everything in our day related to ideas and truth, everything is up for revision. Everything is up for scrutiny and for retelling. And just think about how difficult that would be if that was your church. The church of Jesus Christ cannot be caught up in this tide of instability when it comes to ideas, when it comes to truth. So imagine if Every week you arrived at church and what the church taught about God, who he is and what he was like, was subject to revision. Think about it. If every week, depending on who was preaching in the pulpit, you would get a different version of the gospel, what instability that would bring to your faith, your hope, and your love. There would be no stability You'd be like tossed between waves depending on what was coming out of the pulpit that week. But that's not the case in a confessional church. The practice of confessionalism, as confessionalism serves the truth of Scripture, it helps keep us rooted in turbulent times. It guides our instructions. It gives clarity to our teaching. It unifies the church. It keeps the church pure by protecting her from false teaching. Unity, purity, Christian education, and clarity. Those are some of the blessings. And this morning, I want you to see the fruit of it. As far as confessionalism preserves and promotes the truth of Scripture, it helps produce worship in the heart of the Christian. So my goal this morning is from two passages to help you see how confessionalism produces awe, reverence, and delight in God. I want to encourage you this morning that when you are rooted in the truth, you are able to glorify and enjoy God in turbulent times. When you are rooted in the truth, you are able to glorify and enjoy God in the midst of pain and suffering And disappointment, rooted in the truth, growing, glorifying, and enjoying God. Before we read our two passages this morning, let's ask for God's help in prayer. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come this morning in need. We need to hear from you. We come with faith, believing that you have spoken and that's been preserved for us in the scriptures. We come in faith, believing that this points us to the Savior. These holy scriptures teach us of Christ, feed us on Christ, and form Christ in us. We come humbly acknowledging our need, but come in confidence and faith that you give your spirit to help us hear and believe 
to trust and obey. So we do ask for your Spirit's help as your word is read and preached this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We begin in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. Hear God's holy word. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost... Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now let us turn to John chapter 4. We're picking up a conversation between Jesus and and a woman at a well in Samaria, John chapter 4, using the Pew Bible, it's on page 889, we'll begin here in just a moment in verse 20. Verse 20, this is the woman speaking, and then Jesus picks up here in the dialogue. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Three things this morning. First, from John chapter 4, I want us to see that God must be worshipped according to the truth. Then the second thing, we'll go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I want us to see that when the gospel is embraced, it always produces worship. And then considering both passages together, I want us to close with thinking about how God saves sinners to make them worshipers. God must be worshiped according to truth. You could stay in your Bibles there in John chapter 4. It's a very important passage about worship. The conversation between Jesus and this woman and in what we read from here, Jesus has referenced the verb worship seven times. It's very important for several reasons. I want to draw out at least three fours from this passage. The first being in verses 21, 20 and 21. Jesus here is teaching a change in how God is to be worshipped. He is teaching a change. Now, Jesus, according to his flesh, is a Jewish man, and the person before him is a Samaritan woman. There's a controversy between the Jews and Samaritans. They disagree on the proper place to worship. So the Jews believe that the proper place to worship is the temple in Jerusalem. And so the whole priestly system and the rituals of Jewish worship revolve around 
a specific place where the sacrifices are offered on different occasions throughout the year. There in the temple, there's the Holy of Holies where the high priest goes on behalf of God's people to bring offerings for their sins once a year. The temple by the Jews is thought to be the place where God's presence on earth resides there in the Holy of Holies. For the Samaritans, for reasons that I'll explain momentarily, they rejected that. Now the Samaritans, they're at this point distant cousins of the Jews, but they're, they're feuding cousins. They're not close cousins. There's no family reunion when they're getting together. They have sharp disagreements and animosity between the two peoples. The Samaritans say true worship is offered at Mount Gerizim because Mount Gerizim is near where where Shechem was and that's where Father Abraham and Jacob built altars. And so we worship at the true place and it's not Jerusalem. And Jesus comes and he, he looks towards Jerusalem and he looks towards Mount Gerizim and it's interesting that he's neither at the temple at this point nor on that mountain, but he's just at a well, and he says, location isn't going to matter anymore. Because of my coming, something is changing. That's the first thing. Jesus is teaching that worship is no longer tied to geography. It's no longer geographical. The second thing that Jesus wants to teach and make clear concerning worship here, it begins in verse 22, is that worship is a response to truth. Worship is a response to truth. Worship is a response to what God has revealed. Now let me show you where I'm getting that in the passage. There, this is what seems pretty awkward for us to to read where Jesus is confronting this woman's beliefs about worship there in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. Ouch, right? And then he says, we worship what we know For salvation is from the Jews. Now, don't mishear what Jesus is saying. He's not just picking a side and saying, my team's right, your team is wrong. He's drawing something out very important. A big difference between Samaritans and the Jews is that the Samaritans, they only received the first five books of the Old Testament. And so that's why they didn't understand that God established the temple to be built where it was intended to be built and its design. According to the first five books, they looked at the book of Deuteronomy and they thought, we have the right mountain. And so Jesus appropriately says, you're trying to worship the Lord, but you can't because you haven't received all that he has revealed. Worship isn't just having fond feelings and, and a, a desire or an excitement about God. True worship is recognizing what God has revealed about himself and then responding. Worship is not just singing songs, but we sing songs that are filled with what God has revealed in Scripture back to him because that's how we know what he is like. And so we do it together. But true worship is always according to truth. And how do we know the truth? We know it because God has revealed it. And he's pointing this out to this woman. He's saying, dear woman, you want to be a worshiper, but as long as you do not embrace all that God has revealed about himself in Scripture, you cannot. You're cut off. And then something else is told about the, the truth there. It says that God is spirit, and so that Those who are to worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And this discussion about geography was missing something very important about God. That the God who is to be worshipped is not bound to this mountain and he's not stuck in this temple. But he is without a body. He is the giver of life. And when you get fixated on the location, they were missing something about what God has revealed about himself. God's essential nature is spirit. The third thing Jesus teaches here to this woman at the well about worship is this. 
Worship is inescapably Trinitarian. That true worship must be Trinitarian. What do I mean by Trinitarian? The, the, the Christian teaching of the Trinity, that God is one God and three persons as we confessed using the Shorter Catechism earlier. Equal in substance and in glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's all over the passage. And we could step back and just marvel for a second at this is happening at noon, roughly, at a well in Samaria, Jesus and this one woman. And the depths of the, the Trinitarian theology is just oozing all over it. There in verse 23, what does it say? Jesus tells her, true worshipers will worship the Father. The Father. Here in John's Gospel, Jesus comes as one who's telling the world that God is a Father. And he comes as one who is mediating God who is Father, mediating that fatherly love to sinners. This is the story John has been telling so far in his gospel. And now we're starting to see that it is worship to be central on, centrally focused on the Father that Jesus is proclaiming. And Jesus is, is the one who is bringing sinners to the Father to worship him. He is the one mediating not just a relationship of God's love to sinners, but then the sinners worship back to God. The Father is central, but as you put the Father central in worship, Jesus becomes central because you can't know him as Father apart from Jesus. And that's all over the passage too. There in the verse 21 when Jesus responds to the woman, this is, this is a rare occurrence. Jesus looks at her, looks her in the eye, and he calls her to faith. He says, believe me. Believe me. You want to talk about worship? You want to talk about how to, how to come to God? Believe me, he tells her. And then when he tells her salvation is from the Jews, choosing the preposition from is, is, is fascinating. He's not declaring that salvation is in Judaism or even that salvation is by Judaism, but in what God had given to them in special revelation by way of covenant and promises is the blessing of all peoples. And when he's saying salvation is from the Jews, he has his own person and work in mind because he is a Jewish Messiah. The one who which will fulfill what God told Abraham he will do through Abraham, that he will, God will bless all the nations through him. Salvation is from the Jews because the true Jew has arrived in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, who which Samaritans, Gentiles, and sinners of any sort and background and ethnicity can come and know God as Father. And Jesus speaks of his hour. There's an hour here that keeps coming up. The hour is coming, the hour is coming. That no longer will it matter if you worship at the temple or at Mount Gerizim. In John's gospel, the hour is the hour. The hour at which Jesus will fulfill what was prophesied of him by John the Baptist, that he is the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He's referencing his cross in this conversation with this woman. He said the hour is coming that, that there will be no more sacrifice to offer in order to bring worship to God, that the once and for all sacrifice will be made and he's saying the temple will be obsolete because another temple has arrived. God himself, Emmanuel, God with us. And this is who is talking to this woman. And he confirms it in verse 26. She says, are you the Messiah? And in our English translations, to smooth it out, it says, I who speak to you am he. But the Greek resembles what God told Moses in Exodus 3 when Moses said, 
Who are you? What's your name? And God says, I am. Jesus says the same thing here to this woman. He's the mediator of God's love to the world and of worship to the Father. But there's another member of the Trinity, another person, the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus means when he says that true worshipers are to worship God in spirit and in truth. John 14, verse 17. John chapter 15, verse 26. John 16, verse 13. Refer to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. And so just as in John chapter one, Jesus is referred to as the one full of grace and truth, in John's gospel, the Holy Spirit is spoken of as the spirit of truth. And Jesus is saying, because of my coming and because of the cross in which he will go to and his ascension and his pouring out the Holy Spirit, sinners will not be tied to a location but they will have direct communion and fellowship and worship with God because of the giving and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The ceremonial instructions on how to come before God are giving way to something better. God has come to us. And in summary, what is Jesus teaching? True worship is directed to the Father, mediated through the Son, and empowered and directed by the Spirit. It's very encouraging. It's good to be reminded of. What does it have to do with confessionalism? Well, just simply, the question is, what happens if you mess with the Trinity then? If your chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, and that the true worship comes it's directed to the Father, mediated through the Son, empowered by the Spirit. If you start monkeying around with the Trinity, the very purpose for existence is in jeopardy. But as far as confessionalism serves the truth and preserving and promoting what the Scriptures teach about who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what you are to believe about Him, it is a great support and encouragement and as we behold God in truth, it produces worship. God must be worshiped according to truth. Our second thing, and if you'd like to, you could turn back to, to 1 Timothy here with me and look at verses uh, 15 and 17 of chapter one again. When the gospel is embraced, it always produces worship. Here in this first chapter of Timothy, Paul is addressing a controversy, much like the way that Jesus was addressing a controversy. But here the, the controversy is a little bit different. If you go back and read earlier in this first chapter, Timothy is a young pastor that has been uh, trained by Paul, and now he's pastoring in Ephesus. And there are false teachers that have come in to this church and infiltrated this church and po quite possibly have become elders or some have some formal position in this church and Timothy, he has to address it. And while we don't have a full statement of, of what their false teaching was here in Paul's letter to Timothy, uh, earlier in chapter one we were told that it has to do with these guys really got fascinated with the Old Testament law. And they got so fascinated with it that apparently it began to obscure the gospel. And so Paul then has to address it in such a way because here in, in Timothy's circumstances, in this situation, there are unacceptable teachings that are circulating. There are things that the church should not accept and should reject. They are outside the bounds. Paul is saying, these things do not belong to our confession. So how does he say it? Look back at verse 15. There he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is formulaic. It's a formula. He is introducing something. He's saying this is something that is known to the churches and accepted as being reliable, dependable, and true. This is a faithful word. 
Paul uses this formula five times in his pastoral epistles. And he's using it to identify here something in contrast to what these false teachers are saying about the law. This is what you should believe. And so then he says in verse 15 that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, this is filled with doctrine, isn't it? It's the doctrine of Jesus. It's the doctrine of Christ, his person and his work in this one statement. It's a confessional statement for Paul, and he is putting it on Timothy and saying this is what the church is to hold to. It says that Christ, he came into the world, implying that he has a pre-existence, that he had an existence before his coming into the world. But then he came into the world, it speaks of his incarnation, that the person of the Son of God took on flesh, and that he did so in order to redeem sinners. There's so much doctrine just in Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What's interesting is that this doesn't sound like Paul. Paul oftentimes doesn't talk about Jesus coming or having come to the world. This is one of the unique occasions for Paul when he speaks of of Jesus' person and work in this way. If you read John's gospel, it sounds more like something John would say. I'll show you in a moment. John often talks in in these sort of terms when speaking about Christ. He came and he, he, he comes, but Paul doesn't. Now, some would say, well, it appears that Paul was, was borrowing from John, but historically, it's pretty clear that John wrote after Paul. So this terminology here that Paul's employing is something that both, both John and Paul agreed to, and it was, it was common to the church. And where did it come from? Well, it came from Jesus' own teaching. This is how Jesus spoke about his mission. It's all over the Gospels. In Matthew 9, 13, in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, and Luke 5, verse 32, Jesus says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came. And then in a, a culminating statement of Jesus' mission, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he says to Zacchaeus and those gathered that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Now here are the examples from John's gospel. In John chapter 14, verse 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light. And then in the same chapter, verse 47, for I did not come to judge the world. And then in John chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Then in John eighteen thirty-seven, for this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So John and Paul and the early Christians, they said, Jesus kept teaching us this, that he came into the world. He came into the world, not to call the righteous, but sinners. He came into the world to to bring light. He came into the world to seek and to save the lost. And then they, they put a confessional statement together. Not a direct quote from the words of Christ, as we have them recorded in the Gospels, but a summary. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is how creeds and confessions work. This is here it employed in in Paul's letter. As one commentator put it, Paul is simply making use of the Savior's own way of speaking about himself and is employing language which having been adopted from his lips by the earliest disciples had been spread far and wide. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's a public confessional statement of what Christians must believe about Jesus and his work. But then in verse 16 and the end of verse 15, it's great, it moves from this, this what Christians must confirm to Paul's personal encounter with this truth. And Paul shares something of his testimony. And then what happens? 
in verse 17. Doxology, praise, worship. With no break, straight from doctrine, testimony, into worship. But when we look at the, the worship there in verse 17, take note that it is, it's doctrine. It's not less than doctrine, it's filled with doctrine. It says that Jesus is the king of ages. That's a statement saying that he is the true king. It denies all the other claims to kingship. It says that he is immortal. He is different from all others. He has no start. He has no end. He is invisible. He is spirit. He is God. He is the God of the Old Testament. He cannot be represented by an idol. He is the only God, the one and true living God. Watch, there's this just natural flow of what we must say about the gospel goes straight into praise. And that's how Christian belief works. Maybe you've been tempted in this, in this series or maybe in previous times to be concerned when the church gets too doctrinal, that we're, we're getting big brains and little hearts That wasn't the case for Paul. He didn't know that. For him, that was a false dilemma. That what he believed was expressed in worship and in service. That doctrine and doxology were not at odds, but they were, they were friends, and one led to the other, and then one fed into the other. And, and so, clear gospel proclamation results in praise. This is... This is how all Christian faith and theology works. The easiest example is the statement that Christians from the very beginning started saying, Jesus is Lord. What is that? Well, it's a public statement of what we believe about Jesus and it is a public statement of our praise of him. There's no dilemma between head and heart when the head and the heart are gripped in the gospel and the good news. Jesus is Lord. It's a confessional statement. It's a statement of praise. Carl Truman said this of that statement, Jesus is Lord, all Christian theology is one long running commentary upon or fleshing out of this short, simple, ecstatic cry. It's a cry of praise and it's a cry of truth. Jesus is Lord. So what does this have to do with confessionalism? Well, what happens if you mess with the gospel what happens if you mess with the, the message that the apostles handed down and its interpretation? You're messing with the glory of God. You're obscuring who the one true and living God is. And confessionalism, as far as it is faithful, it serves the truth, preserving and promoting what is the gospel and for all those who've embraced that gospel, it produces worship. Which brings me to the third thing this morning. God saves sinners to make them into true worshipers. There's plenty of themes that we could draw up between the two passages that we, we looked at this morning. But we could just think about Paul and this woman. Think about these two sinners who were brought into the family of true worshipers. How does Paul refer to himself here? As soon as he says that statement, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, he says, whom I was the foremost. He's saying, I was the worst. Now you and I, when Paul says that, we should sit, push back a little bit. Because before coming to Christ, Paul was a very moral person. He was a very strict observer of 
all he understood and knew of the Old Testament law. Nearly as close as a sinner could get to being flawless in observance, that was Paul. And so you and I should look at him and say, Paul, is that hyperbole? Were you really that bad? You seemed like a, a pretty decent guy. You didn't lie, cheat, steal. You didn't commit adultery. You didn't murder. Go on, on and further. And then all that God told you to do to ceremonially worship him, you did it all. You didn't give him your leftovers. You gave him your best according to the Old Testament law. Paul, were you really that bad? And Paul looks at his life and he says, the first time I heard the gospel, I hated it. I didn't believe it. But it wasn't enough that, that I chose to reject it the first time I heard the gospel. Is that I didn't like if other people believed it. And so I sought to dissuade others from believing this message that Jesus was the Messiah. But it wasn't enough that I was blaspheming him and, and saying, telling others not that he was not the Messiah. I started then persecuting those who did name the name of Christ. And it wasn't enough that I just thought that, that they would be pressured into keeping their mouth shut, but I, I orchestrated raids in which that they would be arrested and imprisoned if they named the name of Christ. And then when that wasn't enough, I approved when Stephen was killed in Acts chapter 7 because he named the name of Christ, proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul sees himself as the foremost because he genuinely sought to snuff out the gospel that it would never see the light of day for the ages, that it would go away, that it would be lost in history and that we wouldn't be speaking about it today. That was who Paul was until he met Christ. And what does Paul speak about the grace that was shown to him in Christ in verse 16? That Jesus, in his lordship over all things in his church, was patient with this man, Paul. He was patient. That Jesus allowed him to go down this road of wicked unbelief and persecution and blasphemy knowing that he was going to rescue him from himself and his sin. He was patient with him. There in verse 16 it says that he might display. The, the Greek gives the image of sketching. That Paul, when he looks back at who he was and who he is now that he's met Christ, he says, the Savior, he's an artist. He used me and my sin to draw a picture, to demonstrate to sinners for all time that you might be a hater of God, but Jesus can still save you. That you could be a blasphemer and you could be one who comes to worship him in spirit and in truth. Today, do you find yourself thinking, I've gone too far, I'm the worst of the worst. I've rejected the message too much. I've sinned too far. Paul holds up himself and says, look what God has done in my life. And when I think about it, I just burst into praise. King of ages. Immortal. To him, all glory and honor belong. Jesus holds up his servant Paul to you, sinner today, and says, you can come too. If he can come, anyone can come. You can come. But it's not just Paul. We see this at the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Now, I told you that the, the Jews and Samaritans, they didn't like each other. It was, it was, it was really bad. But this woman... She had a lot going against her as far as the Jews. Good thing Jesus wasn't an ordinary Jew. 
The rabbis would say that of a Samaritan woman that when a girl was, a Samaritan girl was, was unclean from the cradle. That's how much they despised them. You see none of that with Jesus. But this was what was going against her. But Jesus comes and he meets her. But it turns out, this woman is, is quite unclean. They begin this conversation. They're going back and forth. And through the conversation, we learn that she is quite the scandalous sinner. Jesus sits down at the well. It's warm. He's parched. He's experiencing life in this world like you and I experience it. And he's thirsty. So this woman comes, and he asks for water. And because of what I just told you, she is kind of shocked, saying, yeah, you won't have anything to do with me? Highly unlikely. And he flips it on her in the dialogue and says, well, if you knew the living water that I had to offer you, you would ask me for that. And he's got her interest. And she says, oh, are, are you greater than, than our father Jacob who gave us this well? And he continues saying, you sure? There's something in your soul that's missing and you're longing, you're thirsty. I'm, I'm, I'm a little, my, my, I'm thirsty here in this, in, this, in this heat, but there's something even deeper, a deeper thirst in you and I have what you need. And he offers her living water. And she says, yes, I'll take it. Give me the living water. And Jesus then takes a turn and says, go call your husband. You have to wonder what her reaction would be because what we're told is that she initially says, I have no husband. She may have looked down at her feet in, in shame. Jesus says, that's right. Had five husbands. And the one whom you're living with now is, is not your husband. And he's pressing into this scandalous sinner. Not to shame her. But to save her. Not to make her feel low. But to offer her what she needs. See the prophet Jeremiah spoke of. In Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13. That God's people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountains of living water. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That applies to Jews and Samaritans and to everyone who's ever walked on the planet. That they, we have all forsaken the fountain of living waters and we have looked to other things to satisfy the thirst and longing of our soul. And Jesus comes and says, is that really working out? How are those broken cisterns working for you? If you come to me, I have living water. This, and the kindness and compassion of the Savior is, is coming to the, what many people would think is the least likely person to offer the Holy Spirit to, to offer God the Father to. And Jesus has gone out of his way. He sought her. She wasn't looking for him. He went to that well looking for her. Because that's the kind of God we have. Jesus is just doing exactly what his father wants him to do. Jesus tells us here in our passage that it's his father who is seeking true worshipers. That seeking language throughout the New Testament is always saving language. It's always the language of God coming and rescuing. Jesus sought her because the father through him was seeking her. And through his son, the father seek sinners, and he always gets them. He leaves the 99 to go get the one. He finds the missing coin. This is 
the God of the Bible, seeking to save sinners, to make them into true worshipers. This is the truth we proclaim. This is our hope in life and in death. The call to worship God in spirit and in truth is not a call to do more and to try harder. It's the call to leave behind the broken cisterns that leave you empty and to come to Christ and receive living water. It's the call to leave behind your sin and your shame and come and glorify and delight in a God who seeks to save sinners in order that he might share himself with them for all eternity. It's a call to come and know the one who came in person and he He ate the food that we ate. He drank the water we drank in order that he might in turn offer to us the bread of life and living water. That we might glorify and enjoy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. The moment we'll sing, come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount. I'm fixed upon it. Mount of God's unchanging love. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Our Heavenly Father, the idea of we must worship you according to the truth can be daunting, intimidating. But we thank you that it is not to push us away. No, you are a God who rescues and brings the truth to us that we might know you that we might walk with you, that we might commune with you, the one and true living God. So may we become obsessed with the truth. Lord, not merely to give answers to questions, but that we find the answers that our soul longs for And we bring those answers to a lost and thirsty world. And that Christ will be glorified in the salvation of sinners going from darkness to light, going from rebel to worshipers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.